The second theme is self-justification versus justification. Luke hits this one hard. Because remember, Luke is Jesus, the perfect human, the wisest human. Justification is a huge battle in the Gospel of Luke. So what is self-justification? Self-justification is when humans try to justify themselves based on what they have or have not done and how much of it they have done. Self-justification is what we're all guilty at different times. Some more than others and sometimes more than others and some areas more than others. But it's basically where I say, my merits are better than my demerits. I have done more good things in this area or fewer of these bad things and therefore I'm a good person. Most of us, all of us know that we're not great, awesome people. We know that we're sinners, but what we're all guilty in self-justification is, well, at least I'm not Hitler, or at least I'm not like that guy down the street, or at least I'm not going out and killing a bunch of people, right? And I've actually heard students say this, like, where we're, and they're like, well, at least I'm not going out and just killing a bunch of people. It's like, well, yeah, when you put it in that perspective, yeah, you're great, but it's, we're not, you still hurt all these people, and it was unloving, and there's still consequences. That's how we so justify It's called scorekeeping. And we look at how healthy we are, how wealthy we are, how successful we are, or how much we're not doing of those things, or how much we are doing of these great things. And either on a little level or a major level, we're all somewhere on the spectrum, we're scorekeeping. On an unintentional, subconscious level or on a conscious level. And it's this idea, well, at least I'm not doing this, or at least I'm not this bad. Now, don't get me wrong. There is something to that, okay? There is something to what the author of Amazing Grace said, that I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. There is something that, like, yes, I'm a screwed up parent, and I'm very aware of that every single day. But I'm also aware that I'm not what I used to be. I've gotten better, and at least I'm not doing this, and at least I'm doing well in this area. Because that's important, too. We can't just, like, wallow in our misery. That's not healthy for anybody. But when you're like, ooh, but I'm better than that, or this is why I don't deserve that, or you owe me, that's where it becomes self-justification, when the pride kicks in, or the, self, or the keeping up with the Joneses, kind of an idea. Justification is through Yahweh is when he declares the ungodly to be just under the requirements of the law. He looks at everything that we've done, including Christ's death on the cross, and says, you're not guilty anymore. You are now righteous. He takes our sin and puts it on Christ, and he takes Christ's righteousness and puts it on us. And he looks at the law and how we violate it all, and how we don't deserve to be declared right before God, but he also looks at Christ and how he accomplished all the law, fulfilled it and did it perfectly, and then died for our sins in the place. And then we put our faith in Christ. And like Abraham, then we are credited righteousness. I don't deserve to have my credit limit on my credit card. I don't deserve to have a credit card. That credit on my credit card is not mine. I didn't earn it. But the credit card company has credited it to me and declared that it is mine and looks at me and treats me as if it is mine. The difference is, I don't have to pay the bill off with Christ. There might be more differences too, but it's a metaphor. He's credited his righteousness based on everything that we have done and everything that Christ has done, but mostly our faith in Christ and what he's done. Now this is big, because in the time of Jesus, the Jews are works-oriented. Now, 
One thing you must understand is the Jews did not believe that their works would save them. That's a misunderstanding. Mostly born out of Martin Luther, or you know him as Martin Luther, but in German it's Luther. It just sounds cooler. Martin Luther, when you, we all know about him enough that he's in the Catholic Church, the Catholics are all about works, improving yourself and that kind of stuff, to nutshell it all down and oversimplify it. And he does his 95 theses and all that kind of stuff, nails to the wall. And because he's so driven by this anti-works, the priests of the believers, salvation by faith, which is totally good, that he gets so obsessive with that that he can't see anything else out of that. And he interprets everything in the Bible through that lens. And we're all guilty of this at different times, where we take our perspective. And so he comes to the Pharisees and he interprets it as if they're the Catholic Church. And he so interprets it through this lens, and he's so obsessive with this that he has a hard time with James. And says, oh, James, it's anathema. He literally calls it anathema, meaning may it be damned. Because James says that faith without works is dead. And he's like, no, I'm fighting against that, right? And that just shows you how he has some blinders on. And don't get me wrong, Martin Luther was an amazing man of God, that God did amazing things with him, and he benefited the church in amazing ways, but we're all flawed. And we also make mistakes. And so he interpreted this, and he came with this idea that therefore the works-orientedness of the Pharisees was they're trying to earn their salvation. But that's not exactly what's going on. There is a works there, but it's not earning your salvation. Listen, the Jews know you can't earn your salvation. If you've read the First Testament, it's just over and over and over again, you suck, you suck, you suck. Okay, Moses literally gives them a speech at the end of Deuteronomy where he goes through their entire history from Abraham up to that point. And he basically says, you failed, you've sinned, you can't do it. All this kind of stuff over and over and over again. You rebelled here, you rebelled there again. Even when he had all these opportunities, you saw the ten plagues, you saw the glory of God, and you still sin. God provided you water and you still complain. In fact, you accused God of being a psychopath who saved you only to kill you. Like, what is wrong with you people? You've seen more of God and more miracles and more redemption than anybody in the history of all of Israel or ever will be, unless except for Jesus, and you still sin and rebel against him. And then right before they're buried in their promised land, a good coach would be at halftime, they'd be like, you're awesome, you worked really hard for this, you've got what it takes, now go out there and get them. Moses doesn't say that. He says, you suck, and you're going to go in the promised land, and you're going to fail miserably, and you're going to go into idolatry, and God is going to crush you in exile. Go, get them. Oh, Moses, you missed that day in coaching class. But what he does say is, but the only thing that can change your hard-hearted stiff-neckedness is that your hearts have to be circumcised. Which what he means is cut off all that dead sinfulness so that a new heart can be birthed which is only possible through the Holy Spirit. And this is what um, Jeremiah comes up with and says, on that day, God will pour out a spirit on us and our hearts will be circumcised. And then Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians and says, now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our hearts have been circumcised. So his speech isn't, you're awesome, you're a beautiful snowflake, you can go get them. His speech is, you can't, but Christ will. That's their hope. Then they fail. Every single book of the Bible is they fail. Every single book of the First Testament ends on a horrible negative note. Either they're not in the land, they're sinning, the tabernacle has been destroyed, the temple has been destroyed, they've gone into exile, and finally they go into exile. 
And the prophets, hundreds and hundreds of prophets came along and said, you suck, you're sinning, you're failing. God's going to crush you in horrible ways. He's going to allow happen to you what you did to everybody else. And you read 39 books like this, and in fact, every Jew by the age of 12, every male Jew has had the, the Torah at least memorized, including the speech of Deuteronomy, and you think that they have a works mentality, salvation? They can't. Not after all that history. You cannot have all that memorized and think that works will save you. That's not what they believe. What they believed is that salvation was found in the time of Jesus, the Jews did not believe that salvation was found obeying the law or in their works, for it was obvious. They believed that salvation was found in the fact that they were chosen and they had the law. And you're going to see this. They believe that God gave them, chose them to be the chosen people. And God gave them the law. And he didn't give it to all those other nations. And he didn't choose them. Therefore, Israel is saved. And the other nations are not. It was, I'm chosen. Therefore, I'm special. What then did they have to do? They believed that they were already declared saved and right before God by the fact that he saved them and gave them the law. Therefore, obeying the law is how they maintained that salvation. Now, I know that's a little bit semantical, but it's important because you need to understand their argument. They did not believe that they weren't saved and they had to work for their salvation. That's many religions in the world. They believe that God already made them saved and that's how they maintain their salvation was obedience. If, if they're chosen and God chose them and not everybody else and gave them the law and not everybody else, then they're already saved. But they have to maintain their salvation by looking like the chosen. And that's different than Christianity because we're saved by the fact that God chose us by faith, but we don't maintain our salvation through works. We maintain our salvation through faith. And we work in order to please God and show our love and thankfulness to him because we can't think of anything else to do but to be what God wants us to be. So for them, they believe that they're saved because God chose them, but now they have to look and act the part the entire time because if they don't, then they might lose it. Think the prodigal son when he goes away and the son that stayed behind. He was always a part of the house. But his mentality is, I'm working really hard to look like what you're supposed to look like in this family to everybody else. What they begin to believe is that now the first criteria is that you're part of the Abrahamic covenant. So what makes you saved? First, you're part of the Abrahamic covenant. And that is circumcision. Everybody who's circumcised or their family, their head father is circumcised, they're saved. They are biological descendants of Abraham, and they have been circumcised. Genesis 17 says, if you don't cut off that part of your skin, then I will cut you off from the covenant community. By the fact of being ethnically descendants of Abraham and being circumcised, they're saved. Now, where do you see this? You see this in the fact that when John the baptizer comes along, and they're like, well, we don't have to do anything to be saved because John's like, repent for the kingdom of God is near and the axe is at the tree ready to cut you down again and judge you and take you into exile. And they're all thinking, well, we don't have anything to repent of, right? We're descendants of Abraham. And what is John's first statement to them? 
You think because you're descendants of Abraham that you're automatically saved or you're in the kingdom of God? I tell you that God can make descendants of Abraham out of these rocks. That shows you their mentality. John knows what they're thinking. He knows that the Pharisees are thinking, we don't have to repent because we're descendants of Abraham, we're circumcised. And John says, that doesn't make you special. He made descendants of Abraham out of the Egyptians when they left. He made descendants of Abraham out of Ruth and wrote Moab, and he can do it out of these rocks. That doesn't make you special. What you're biologically born to and being circumcised doesn't make you saved. Only repentance can. That's how they think. So that's the first step. The second thing is that the law had emphasized obedience. Over and over again in Deuteronomy, God, Moses said, obey, obey, obey. Now, Moses was making the point that not obedience will save you, but true love is obeying God. You don't obey to get saved. You obey because you love God. And you obey not because you want a reward or you want to escape punishment, but because you love. And this is the main point of Deuteronomy. As humans, we obey most of the time. As humans. I'm not saying everybody here, but as humans. We most of the time obey because we don't want to be punished. I, I drive the speed limit because I don't want to get a ticket. I don't, I don't smoke because I don't want cancer. I don't do drugs because I don't, whatever. I don't break into people's houses because I don't want to go to jail. Even though there's a part of me who's like, I, would, I, would, I mean, I know people have said, I would break in and steal everything if it wasn't for the fact that I knew I would get caught eventually. At least you're honest. Or I want a reward. Everybody will think I'm a really great person. Or I'll get that job promotion. Or I'll make more money. Or everybody will talk about how awesome I am and that will make me feel really good. This is our default. And your personality tends to either lead to one or the other more. But the Holy Spirit is the only one that can give you the ability to actually love because, to obey because you love. Because you actually care about God and you care about those people. This is what Deuteronomy is saying. And so Deuteronomy emphasizes obedience big time. But at the very end of Deuteronomy, God said, if you obey, you will be blessed, long life, prosperity in the land, all these materialistic things. And if you don't obey, you'll, go, you'll be oppressed by your enemies. You'll have famines. You'll go into exile. All these materialistic things. So they begin to think, well, if I'm healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, then I'm being a good Jew. And if I'm sick or crippled or poor, then I'm not a good Jew. Because Deuteronomy says you're blessed if you're obedient, and you're not blessed if you're disobedient. And so the second criteria for salvation becomes, tell me, Jesus, is this blind man blind because his parents sinned or he's sinned? He's not a real Jew because he's blind. He's not a real Jew because he's crippled. He's not a real Jew because he's collecting money for Rome. And we all know that's not good. Rome is the oppressor. These became the two most dominant criteria. So in the words of the, 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 the expert in the law who comes to Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? What he expected Jesus to say is, your neighbor is the descendant of Abraham, is circumcised, who has wealth and health. Those are the people you treat well. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, so there was a Samaritan that you hate who helped a Jew who didn't deserve to be helped because if he got beaten up and robbed, then God expected him that, that, that he deserved it because God wanted it to happen because he's not a good Jew. So you have a, a non-Jew and a bad Jew, and the non-Jew is 
the hero in this story, so to speak, helping the Jew who doesn't deserve to be helped because he deserves to be punished because obviously if he was punished, God wanted it. And then Jesus says, who's the better neighbor? And the guy's like, right? Because that's their mentality. For the Jew, that's what made you saved. And you're going to see that over and over and over again. So when we get to the book of Acts and the Christians are starting to become saved, the, the Jews are becoming saved, who's the next group of people we get saved? The Gentiles. And what does all the Jewish Christians want the Gentiles have to do? Circumcision. And it's so important to them because without circumcision, you're not saved. Because that's your identity. They didn't say you had to obey the law. They said be circumcised to be saved. And then they had a hard time with the Gentiles coming in. So much time that even when Peter was told by God to go save Cornelius, he saw the Holy Spirit come in. He saw him speak in tongues. And he knew this was it. When he went back and hung out with the Jews, he's like, oh, I don't know him. Oh, no, no, no. I wasn't a part of that Gentile coming to Christ. Because he's not a real Jew. And this is what you need to understand, that salvation for them was not through works. Salvation was being chosen and looking like a Jew according to the blessing and cursing laws. And that you then maintained that right behavior and you maintain that wealth and health in order to keep your salvation. Does that make sense? So don't get me wrong. It's still a works mentality, but understanding why they're working is very important for all the arguments that we're going to see Jesus and Luke go through. Because that's why they're going to be so prideful. You see, if they believe that works would save them, you wouldn't see quite the pride and the arrogance of the Pharisees. It's only when you already know you're saved and then you're looking the part that you can become really prideful and say, look at me. Everything shows you that I'm saved. But in Islam, where works does save you, they're not incredibly prideful. Yes, some people are, but the vast majority of them are always wondering if they're going to die and go to hell at any moment. And they're always doing the next work and trying to do it because they're just hoping to God that there's going to be just enough to tip the scales. Most people, when they have a work salvation mentality, they live in fear. They live in oppression. Yes, there are prideful people, but that's not the vast majority. When you get to the Jews, you see pride everywhere. The Pharisees are like, no, he, I, you're hanging out with tax collectors. I'm, I'm good. Look at me. When he prays, I'm not like him. Look how awesome I am. I'm safe. I do this and this and this and this. Works mentality people don't talk like that. Some do. When the, the Jews are like, hey, Jesus, should we pray down lightning on them to kill these people for just kind of stepping a little out of line? Deuteronomy curses. Not only do the Pharisees who have power, but even the everyday normal disciples who are nobodies in the community are all prideful that they're safe. Even to the point that even when the women, because even a woman has less of a status, this is why a Pharisee prays, thank God I'm not a Jew, or sorry, thank God I'm not a woman or a Gentile or a dog. Because those aren't real Jews. Everybody has pride. And when you go through the Gospels, you will see that everybody has pride that is not crippled or sick. The, the disciples or the women, the women don't have pride. In works-oriented salvation, a few people have pride and most people are enslaved and oppressed with fear. And this kind of a salvation 
everyone who has pride, who is male, healthy, and a Jew. It's a different mentality. It still works, but in a different way, a different perspective. And when Jesus comes along, he's going to slam headfirst into them. And he's going to preach a gospel about grace and compassion and love and acceptance. And he's going to put the women on equal status with the men. And he's going to put the crippled on equal status with the healthy. And he's going to put the poor on the equal status with the wealthy as far as their dignity and worth and value in the kingdom of God goes. And the Pharisees are going to hate him for it. Because it's not about you're not doing good works, Jesus. It's about you're accepting people who are not classified as Jews. And they don't deserve to be because they're not saved. And they never can be saved. No matter what they do, they can't be saved. Because no one can heal people like this. And they're too poor to ever come out of that. And they're a woman. They do believe that women can be saved, but much lower down the scale. And that's what you must understand, is it becomes a battle of that. And you need to understand the First Testament agrees with Jesus. And Jesus agrees with the First Testament. Women were given great value and status in the First Testament. The poor was, the crippled were, the Gentiles were. They often show up, the Jews, in their faith. And the prophecies always talk about the crippled and the Gentiles and the women coming to faith in the cosmic mountain. And so Jesus is going to be in alignment more than they are. And so what you're going to see all throughout these, this gospel is the Pharisees and the, the, the experts in the law, they're scorekeeping. They're constantly looking at everybody and keeping score. And they're going to speak in scorekeeping, and they're going to do in scorekeeping, and they're going to try to scorekeep with Jesus. But they're going to keep getting owned by Jesus. And then the other thing that you're going to see is they're going to battle who has the right to interpret the law. It's our word on what salvation is versus your word, Jesus. And so when it comes to the Pharisees, you're going to see a battle between Jesus and them and scorekeeping and who has the right to interpret the law. And the disciples are going to be caught in the middle because no one in Israel believed that the Pharisees were the bad guys like we do. When we read the Gospels, we think Pharisees bad guys. No Jew believes that. The Pharisees are the ones that are saving them. The Pharisees are the ones that are helping them understand the law. The Pharisees are the ones tying them back into their Jewish identity. The Pharisees are keeping them from compromising with Greeks so they, cease, they don't cease to look like Jews. The Pharisees are our teachers. The Pharisees are the most respected youth pastors and missionaries and pastors and godly men and women who are just praying constantly all the time in their corners for you. And you know it. Those are the people you admire and look up to. And when they say this is what it is, you believe them totally because they're the righteous people. And when Jesus comes along, not only is he going to go against them, but the disciples have been, they have that mentality. They're selfish, entitled, Jewish snobbery along with them kill them send down lightning they're all with that and they're going to be caught between this jesus that they know without a shadow of doubt is the messiah but he doesn't sound like a pharisee he doesn't sound like 300 years of jewish theology that is born out of oppression not the law and they're going to be caught in the middle and this is why over and over again it says they didn't understand they brought a sword they questioned jesus they called him out they they wanted to kill they have you ever seen The Chosen? Okay, I finally watched the first two seasons of Chosen. 
Other than the two things in The Chosen, I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. And I, they're minor. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. Actually, it took me a as much as I know about the Bible, it took me a long time to realize who the chosen were. I thought the chosen was Jesus. I thought the whole thing was that he was the chosen, right? It wasn't until season two that I was like, it's really spending a lot of time on the disciples and not so much on Jesus. And my wife was like, that's why it's called the chosen. It's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense now. <laughs> but if you watch that, they argue all the time. If anything... For the first time ever, I believe that the chosen seasons actually demonstrate what I've been saying tonight more than anything has ever had in all Christianity. The constant pride and bickering. Peter and Matthew going at Levi going at each other. That's pride. Absolute pride. This is their mentality. And so we're not just talking about a nature and a human. We're talking about a worldview. We're talking about a theology. We're talking about interpretation of scripture. We're talking about everything. And Christ is combating all that. And his Pharisees and his disciples and even the oppressed, the poor, and the crippled and the women, they've bought into it too. And even they're at the short end of the stick of it and they don't like it, they still believe it's true because Everyone believes it's true. And he has not just come to save people and go head to head with a few weird people over there. He has come to literally flip their entire culture upside down. Everybody is getting flipped. And I know I spent a lot of time on this because it's so important. Because the more you understand how they're thinking in the world that they're in, the better you're going to understand what Jesus is doing. And the better you understand what Jesus is doing, then you can better apply it to our life and our culture, which is similar and different depending on how it is. Does that make sense? The better you understand the original intention, the more accurate you're going to be in your application. If you don't understand the original culture, and therefore you won't understand what is being said and done, then you will not know how to accurately apply it to your life because you'll just be making random cultural jumps. This is why I feel like it's very important to set up this world and this worldview to, so that the Gospels will go much more smoothly in our thinking. And if you're like, I haven't fully grasped this completely yet, don't worry. I'm going to keep hitting this over and over again because this is a theme in the book. Does that make sense? Any questions?